Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 126. On today's show, we talk about Scottish petroglyphs, a new way to date old rocks, and CRM on an Air Force base in Wyoming. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So we are at our home for the next two and a half months. Yeah, we're going to be archaeologists for once. I know. (laughs) We're archaeologists all the time. Well, yeah. Sometimes you're just not doing archaeology. Right. We're not always in the field. Right. So anyway, we are near Elko, Nevada. I can't give the exact location because that's how CRM archaeology works. So, you know, it's always cloak and dagger. Are you going to fire yourself? I might fire myself. Yes. (laughs) If you've read my book at all, which you can find at all... Well, you can't find it any retailers or probably Amazon. Maybe so I won't Amazon. Even mention, I won't even mention it. No, it's mm-hmm. still on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Field Archaeology Survival Guide. But I think in there I mentioned at least once when I was fired. Anyway, so let's get back to archaeology. We've, we've got three great news stories for you. We even have a CRM news story at the end. This first one I feel like is almost a crossover because I've been co-hosting sometimes but producing all the time the new-ish rock art podcast that we have on the archaeology podcast network our fantastic rock art career rock art researcher dr alan garfinkel hosts the show sometimes when he doesn't have a guest i'm on the show with him and i'm thinking about this next article because i directly asked him a question in that show that then this article pops up and basically answers the question for oh, me. Oh, really? Yeah, so we'll get to that in a second. Well, that's good, because I don't really know anything about rock art, except for what I learned from editing that podcast, so I'm right. excited. Right. So, the article is from Sky News over in the UK, and I know that's not, you know, it's not a not credible resource, but, you know, there it is. They did not link to the real paper, so well, I don't think there was a paper. I don't think there was a paper. Maybe Which, it'll be coming at some point, but... Right. We'll get to that. Yeah. It's called An Incredible Discovery... And they put that in quotes. I don't know why. Prehistoric animal carvings found in Scotland for the first time. So carvings, a.k.a. petroglyphs, for anybody that knows anything about archaeology, uh-huh. they try to dumb it down for the masses. But our audience knows what a rock carving is. It's mm-hmm. a petroglyph. Yes. So here's the, the details here. It's up to 5,000 years old. There's no mention of how they dated this thing. Aside from the fact that it was found inside of what they call in Scotland, in the UK, a cairn. Now, a cairn over here where I'm sitting in Nevada is a stack of rocks. Yeah. It's a marker of some sort, whether it's a, a historic boundary, a you know, tribally-related boundary, a mining claim. Yeah. They're markers. They're stacks of rocks that are markers. But a cairn in Scotland has a much different connotation. It's it's like a chamber. Oh. Yeah. It is can, it cairn, C-A-I-R-N? Yeah, like it's the, same way? the same oh, way. Okay. All right. Yeah. So this guy was walking by. They don't really even talk about him a whole lot, to be honest, but... 
he was he, well. Hamish Fenton is his name. He has a background in archaeology. I'm not <laughs> sure what that means. I think he took an Anthro 101 class when he was, you know, at the University of Sheffield, <laughs> like 45 so, years ago. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, he was walking by and he noticed an opening in this cairn. Like, and I'm thinking, like, for 5,000 years, no one else noticed this. What's going on here? Yeah. But anyway, he goes inside, has his flashlight. And he starts looking around and he noticed, I think on the ceiling and upside down to his perspective, he noticed what looked like some carvings. He looked some shapes. Mm-hmm. And when he looked at it a little closer, he noticed that they were deer. Now, red deer are extremely prolific in that area. Right. In fact, another podcast that we have called Archaeology and Ale normally outside of pandemic times is the recordings from the University of Sheffield's monthly talks at the Red Deer Pub in oh, Sheffield. Oh yeah, England. totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean that pub is like, I don't know, a billion years old because it's England. <laughs> like it's incredibly old. Right. But but Red Deer are all over up there. They're very iconic in the area and very important to people of all time periods that have, you know, lived with the Red Deer. So what they found was basically two male red deer with fully grown antlers. And what could be seen as other carvings that are like possibly younger deer. If you look at this article that we linked to in the show notes, the there's two of them that are very clearly deer. And the other three, while they could be younger deer, they could be something else entirely because they look like I tried to draw a deer and it just didn't work out. So Right. Anyway... That's really cool. And where, how this intersects with the Rock Art Podcast is just a couple episodes ago from when we're recording this now. So I think episode 40, 41, something like that. We talk about Koso bighorn sheep. And Koso area is the eastern Mojave of the, I guess, south central California. Right. And the Koso range has just thousands and thousands of rock art panels and nearly every single one of them has some version of bighorn sheep on it the bighorn sheep are so popular there and so needed by the the culture and so revered by the culture and it was just you know an amazing thing and i asked dr garfinkel on the podcast is there this prolific art related to a single animal anywhere else in the world Mm -hmm. and he said well yeah it's all over the place so you know in the midwest where you find not a lot of rock art in the Midwest, but in like the upper Midwest and Wyoming and Montana, you find buffalo, yep. bison. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some places where you find like rabbits mm-hmm. uh, in the world. There's all th- there's things all over the place. Basically, whatever whatever is local to the area. And yeah, the phrase the phrase that you use is called an indexical animal. It's, oh, okay. Uh, it's a very important animal for the area, not just mm-hmm. for food, but for other resources and sometimes even religion. Right. So that's what we have here is basically the red deer is an indexical animal for this area. And again, it dates to about 5,000 years ago. And I, again, I think they only know that because the cairn dates to that. They probably knew that already. Yeah, I was just wondering that because it's such a very specific date. And I'm like, where yeah. are they coming up with that? And how do they know? And and to make the claim of it being the earliest rock art in Scotland, like you have to be pretty certain of that before you start going around claiming that. So Right. And if it's contemporaneous with this Karen, because somebody could have come and draw that on there twenty years ago. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like if you have a background in archaeology, like you know. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure he didn't do that. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, right. I don't know I don't know what other research they've done on this. Um Doctor Tertia Barnett is a principal investigator for Scotland's rock art project. And Mm. She said it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, she's seen it. Presumably, she's not thinking it's not real. Uh, but again, there's no paper or anything yeah. to, re- to report on here. But 
She says that, you know, it's previously thought that animal carvings of this antiquity didn't exist in Scotland because none had been found. Oh. So I wonder when archaeologists are going to realize that just because something hasn't been found doesn't mean it doesn't exist. exist. Yeah. It usually just means we haven't found it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Not everything is preserved in such a way that we can find it later on. So did it give you an idea of scale of these drawings? I'm, I'm curious, like how big they are. I'm trying to wrap my head around like how big this opening was. What kind of walls we're looking at for, or ceiling, I guess, for carving yeah. into, and like I, I'm having You're not trouble. You're going to get those details. Okay, I'm yeah, having trouble so. getting that like picture in my mind of how this works because here in the, you know, American Southwest, mm-hmm. you see like a wall, like a cliff, right? And that's where the petroglyphs are usually. You know, there might be a field of boulders like there are at Petroglyph National Monument in Albuquerque, where it's a bunch of boulders with flat faces on them that have been carved into. But either way, yeah. it's like usually open on the landscape. I'm just trying to wrap my head around how it how it exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, who knows? And maybe it was important to the, the person who was buried there. Maybe it had nothing to do with the event of creating the cairn. Mm-hmm. Honestly, who knows? But uh, this is also the first time. Uh, and again, no, no d- determination of scale. The guy in his own words, slid inside. So I don't, I, I take that to mean he like so got sideways. So is it like a cave? Like, well, it's an opening. I mean, it's, it's an, an ar- op- from what I understand, a cairn is like an, like an artificial structure almost, but okay. now it's possibly covered in dirt and stuff, but there's a stone okay. opening. I mean, it's the way I pictured it is it's kind of like a mound. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to go like Google this yeah. and see what they look like. Yeah. There's no real good pictures of it. There's a video, which I'm not going to play right now, but yep. anyway, yeah, they show they show the rock and they show the mm-hmm. sketches of the rock and what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. I and you that. can actually see in the background of one of the pictures the cairn itself with the stone opening with kind of a mantle on top and you you do kind of just go inside. We saw stuff like this in Scotland at some of those parks we went to. We saw things like this when we were in Scotland back in 2015, I think it was. Yeah, I guess I just didn't realize that they were man-made structures. So Yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, hasn't this been studied to like within an inch of its life by grad students or something? Like it's a not a, it's not like he found this thing. Right. He just went inside at the right light at the right time of day and, and happened it. to see these. Mm-hmm. So now I'm sure researchers are like, man, what else have we missed? Well, that is so petroglyphs right there, though. I always say that when you're in an area where you think there might be petroglyphs, you've got to stop and turn around. Like if you're actively looking for them, if you're on survey or whatever, stop and turn around because the things that you see from one direction and with light in one, you know, shining one way will not necessarily be the same thing when you turn around and look at it from the other direction. Right. Apparently, one of the more prolific markings of this time period, which again, I didn't really know about, are these cup marks. And I don't know what cup mark means, like shaped like a cup or... I think it's like like, a, like it's a... Like a depression. Yeah. Because that's like what a cup a mark is in like Southern California. It's almost like you took something and you ground, uh, ground mm-hmm. a hole into it, right? I think that's what they mean by cup mark. Mm-hmm. And that's surrounded by concentric rings. Sounds to me like it looks like a sun and planets orbiting. Yeah. That's kind of yeah, yeah. how I picture it when they mention it. Mm-hmm. But apparently there's more than 3,000 of those across Scotland. And a lot of them date to the Neolithic that this thing dates to. And no animal carvings have ever been found in association with these markings. So they were in there too. Well, maybe this person was an exceptional artist for the day. 
I'm thinking somebody was an exceptional artist 30 years ago, but <laughs> who knows? It's so hard with rock art because you just don't know. Yeah, I just can't imagine they haven't seen it before. That's what floors me. You know, I can't imagine that. Like I said, light is crazy and weird, and especially in such yeah. a tight, small space like this. And I guess these things are probably so common. People grow up with them that, you know, somebody maybe didn't study it recently. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Maybe you it know? hasn't been part of like an actual archaeological excavation or, yeah. or even just like something where they're studying them, right. not even excavating. So interesting. Well, speaking of rock and dating it and how old it is, we're going to try to date some rock on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 126 of the Archaeology Show. And this time we are moving across the world to Tibet, where we're going to look at some rock dating. Not rock art dating, just Dating the rocks themselves. I mean, I don't know if it's that far across the world. It's not like it's in this hemisphere. I mean, it's still pretty far. Yeah, it's pretty far. <laughs> All right. So I found this article on fizz.org, and they're actually a really great source for any kind of science of articles. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're really great. And they did link to the source article on this too. So we'll have both the fizz article and the source article for this. I think it's great to read both, but really the Fizz article, that's where I got a great overview of what they're talking about. So the title of the original article is Oldest Human Traces from the Southern Tibetan Plateau in a New Light. Yeah. And so what they're doing here is they are basically using a not exactly new, but I suppose a new a new application of a technique called optically stimulated luminescence, OSL. I'm quite sure we have talked about that before. Yeah. OSL has been used by archaeology for quite a while now, but they're, they're using it to, they're just putting it on steroids. They're using it to a much yeah. higher degree in a different way. Yeah. I think we talked about it in the large stone pots mm-hmm. in Laos because they were using it to look at the ground underneath the pots 
and get some dating, right? Wasn't that the technique they used there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they used OSL for that. Yeah, but that was looking at like grains of soil, basically, for that study. Yeah. In this case, they're using it in the same way, but they're actually looking at the rocks themselves and not just rocks, because if you think about it, a rock... Once the outside gets weathered, the inside is therefore like never sees light again, right? Mm -hmm. So it's got the same, you know, light date, (laughs) if you will, that it had when the rock was created, which was however, you know, millions, billions of years ago. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, like it takes a while for this weathering to build up and kind of seal in the light signature. Exactly. Yeah. But we're also not even able to date most rock artifacts to anything but their billions of year old actual date, right? right. So if we can get to within a few thousand years, mm-hmm. we're probably pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like what they're doing, and honestly, like the Tibet part of this article, it really just happens to be where this researcher who is kind of leading the charge on mm-hmm. this OSL stuff, he just works in Tibet. So that's sort of where the Tibet angle comes in, and he used this dating technique in Tibet. But what he's doing is is he's taking artifacts, um, stone tools and things that have been used or shaped by humans. And then they are dropped on the ground again. They get a new coating of some sort of patina or weathering or whatever. They basically get reburied or partially reburied. And then that changes the light signature so that you can date that artifact based on the internal light from the last exposure. Right. I think I'm explaining that correctly. I think so. And I'm going to use a paragraph that was in this paper. So Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to I'm going to try to explain this to as much a degree as they did. The one thing I don't understand is how something gets saturated with light. Like are the actual photons being stored inside of certain rocks. Mm-hmm. Like what are they actually measuring? They keep saying the luminescence or luminosity or light. But I'm a little confused as to what that means. But. Yeah, and I think if you go read the actual research paper, mm-hmm. and if you can understand it, because I did start reading it a little bit, and it's like, well, okay, I'm going to go back to the fizz.org article, because that was in language that I can understand. And yeah. I'm not dumb, it's just really complicated. So one of the things they say here is the inside of a rock, and the inside is anything that just hasn't been exposed to light, so the inside could be just a few millimeters inside, mm-hmm. but the inside of a rock has never been exposed to sunlight, you know, because rock is formed typically either due to high pressures, right. deeply underground due to high pressures, or it's formed in volcanoes, or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, basically pressure or volcano. Those are the two ways you make rock. Mm-hmm. And both of those things happen... I wouldn't say don't happen at the surface. Volcanoes definitely produce rock at the surface, but then it's just the outer layer, and then the inner stuff is all never seen the sunlight. Oh, okay. So the inside's never seen sunlight. Never. Okay. And that's the weird thing is they say the inside of a rock has never been exposed to sunlight, so it has a saturated luminescence signal and an infinite high age, which is, again, a little bit confusing. but It is, but I guess I kind of get it because it's never seen sun. But here's the thing. They say that... If the rock surface is exposed to daylight for a long enough time, the signal in the top few millimeters or centimeters, depending on where you're at, of the rock will be erased. So basically, once it's exposed, it kind of resets the rock. Okay. Re- it resets the outer layers the of the outer rock. Layer. Yeah, yeah. The, the outer kind of edge of it. The areas that are exposed. Right. Yeah. Which which this can happen during what's called flint napping, which is how you make stone tools. The right. process of taking flakes off, whether using antlers or other rocks or something like that, is mm-hmm. called flint napping. And that process exposes the rock and basically resets its luminosity right. and what it has. So as soon as the rock is done being used by humans, whether it's broken, discarded, whatever, 
and then it's partially buried in sediment, sediment or somehow shielded from light, even if only one side of it is buried in sediment. Like we've found stone mm-hmm. tools and it always strikes me after I find the tool. Like there's an incredibly high chance we're going to find some kind of stone tool in the next couple of months when we're out here on this project. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a previously recorded site, it's something new. And I reach down. We just reach down and pick it up without thought. But mm-hmm. the thought that I'm the first person to do that in like 3,000 years. Since the person who lost it yeah. or discarded it. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Right? Isn't amazing. that just a crazy thought? Yeah. So anyway, when that when that artifact is just sitting there upside down for that amount of time in the high desert, sure, the part that's exposed is kind of getting constantly refreshed, it sounds like. Unless mm-hmm. a patina builds up like on Obsidian, like you said, mm-hmm. then that could actually reset its date. In a sense, you could have two dates, one on the underside from shortly after napping, probably right. within a few years. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, the patina, which could take hundreds, if not thousands of years developed, depending on the area. Right. So anyway, you've got that. You've got the affected rock. You've got the reset. The luminescent signal in the artifact surface recharges by doing that. And they can measure this what they call depth-dependent luminescence signal in the rock surface and calculate the age of the artifact when it was discarded, right? Not yeah. the age of the actual rock, but the age of the time uh, at the, when it was, yeah. When it, it was re-entered the soil, essentially. Basically. Yeah. Now, the other really big factor here, and this, this takes into account like obsidian hydration dating and stuff like that too, is they have to take into account, to account the dynamics of local earth surface processes. What they mean by that is... If you're sitting out here in the high desert, the luminosity is going to be affected in a much different way than if you dropped a projectile point in, deep in the rainforest. Right. And it's completely shaded all the time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. So you, you have, have to have take, a rate. You have to have a, a rate of luminescence absorption, essentially, right. right? And when we've talked about obsidian rind hydration dating for lithic, for like obsidian artifacts, that's another way that we date those because when you crack open an obsidian artifact, it's got that like millimeter thick edge mm-hmm. and it's super shiny and glossy. But over time, it develops this dull patina and that's that's essentially weathering combined with the moisture from the environment so absorbing into the rock. Mm. And again... You know, we're sitting here in the high desert where the humidity is probably 15% at best. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're somewhere really moist, you're somewhere up in like Washington State or, you know, the Pacific Northwest, you might have a really thick rind after only a few hundred years versus a few thousand years. Right. Because right, it's right. different. So that provides its own challenges, though. Same thing with this because. I mean, we're sitting here in the high desert, but we were all we're also sitting in a place that was, you know, probably high ground, but could have been underwater eight, nine thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe uh, maybe a little bit longer ago than that. When there were still people here, there were people here twelve, ten thousand years ago. You know, this could have been, I don't know, lush grasslands. I don't really know, uh, you know, a whole lot about it. But you got to take into account the different environment, the different place the earth was in at the time and everything that's going on. So you have to know a lot about the paleoecology to be able to be able to even calibrate these measurements. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the guy doing the work, Michael Meyer, has a background actually in geology. Michael Michael Meyer. Yes. Isn't that like the guy from Halloween? <laughs> Am I wrong um, on that? I just maybe hear Jamie I, Lee Curtis screaming right now. I like actually hate horror and scary movies, so you're asking the wrong person. I actively avoid them, but right. <laughs> you know that. Michael, Michael Meyer. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, he's the one who is leading this work, and it 
I think he's got like a pretty solid background in geology and he's approaching this from a geology angle as opposed to an archaeology angle. And I think that that's probably helping him figure out how to apply these dating techniques properly to the area and to the artifacts. So Mm -hmm. and I'm also like kind of in love with this picture (laughs) of the person who's got like a black (laughs) cloth over the top half of their body and they're laying and I can see that they're laying on the ground face down like by the legs that are sticking out underneath mm-hmm. the black cloth. It doesn't and look good. It, I know like if I didn't know that they were doing some kind of crazy photo or collection or something right there I'd be like um is that person okay? Yeah that's crazy. <laughs> I'm so, But that does bring up the question though every time we're out in the field and we're recording right What's the first thing you do when you get to an artifact that you have to record? You pick it up. Yeah. So are we <laughs> ruining this data, this potential data, when we pick it up and expose that underside to sunlight? Well, I don't know how long it takes to erase it. You yeah. know what I mean? And if we wanted to do some OSL dating on stuff, we would have to plan that ahead in our research design mm-hmm. and plan for the funding of it and then plan for the proper collection of it because these guys have probably found rock artifacts on the ground. And the reason this guy is covered in a black light it's probably light blocking right it's light blocking so he can pick it up and sample it yeah he's either sampling it right there i don't know how big the osl machine is or he's he's packaging it in a light proof case right so they can bring it back to be to be tested yeah yeah because any amount of light's going to reset it it sounds like it sounds like it's pretty quick or he wouldn't have to do this yeah it must be which is very interesting to me because it's like we always talk about like you never know what future researchers are going to be able to do with with the the data that you're collecting yeah Obviously, I'm not saying that you should be collecting all data in like under a black cloth <laughs> laying face down in the desert. Like that's just I mean, not reasonable. But here's, but. but here's the thing with the like we're in the Great Basin right now and there's generally a no collect philosophy here yeah. when you're doing pedestrian survey. That being said, people pick stuff up, they lick it, they handle it. Oh, they, God, please don't lick it. You know, it. if you pick it up after lunch and you've got, <laughs> you know, orange juice fragments and, and fish tin <laughs> fragments because people like like for some reason, the only place I've ever seen someone eat a sardine <laughs> is sitting on a rock in the it's desert. Like, like literally never seen anyone else eat that, a sardine. That's so archaeology. I know. So, they probably use like the key to roll back the lid, Oh my right? God, it's crazy. So anyway, you all the stuff that we do, we don't, we don't think about the future data potential. Yeah. I mean, there's a good chance no one's ever going to see this artifact again because these things are hard to find. Even right. on when we have to record previously recorded sites because the general rule up on BLM lands is that if it's older than, well, and for U.S. Forest Service lands in Nevada and a lot of places, if it's if it's been recorded more than 10 years ago, we're doing a complete re-record on it. Right. Because weather has happened, cows have happened, people have happened. Right. So we have to record it again. And not only are we not concerning ourselves with the fact that someone else is going to record it in 10 years, probably, Mm -hmm. or more, but we're also not concerned with any sort of current or future data potential. We should always be wearing gloves. I can't say that we're going to be concerned with, you know, blocking the light from these things. We have to pick them up and look at them if we're not going to do that. You've got to walk that line between what's practical in the field, and especially because you're talking about a CRM approach to recording and you have to be honest like CRM companies are companies and they have you know profit and loss situations like they they are businesses and they have to be businesses so the things they're doing are based on a budget yeah and it has to be that way so 
you know, taking such care with artifacts in the field just simply isn't possible. Right. We can do our best, obviously. And now that I know about this technique, it's going to make me much less likely to flip over that artifact. (laughs) The side that's like flip it over so that the side that has been buried for however long until I picked it up, I'm I'm less likely to flip that over so that it's the side that's not facing up. I'm going to make a point of facing it down. What if that's the fluted side? Well, sure. I mean, I'll pick it up and look at it and record it. Hopefully that's not, you know, destroying the data. But I'll flip it back over when I put it back down on the ground. Oh, yeah, sure. You didn't erase it at all. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I'll do my best. (laughs) What about PSL dating? PSL dating? Yeah. What about PSL dating? I don't know about PSL dating. Exactly. Nobody does. It was invented 20 years ago. Oh, my God. You're so annoying. And we don't even know. You just, did you just come back in your time machine and I didn't even see you? Like... Really, what it is, is it's dating things to this time period because it's pumpkin spice latte dating, which is really indicative of the early part of the 21st century. Well, that's that's a lot. <laughs> I don't actually know how to respond to that. You're so special. Right. Well, speaking of CRM, let's... Uh, Take a break and come back, and I found a CRM news article. Now, it's really not a news article, but we're going to talk about CRM and how it's used and all that. So we'll be back in just a minute. Jaguar pull out. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 126 of The Archaeology Show. And we're going to talk about an article right now. It's from the Wyoming Business Report. Oh, you are reaching for your <laughs> sources, sir. Listen, I liked it. I tried to find something that was related to CRM. So I typed mm-hmm. in Section 106. I typed in a few other mm-hmm. things. And I wanted to find something related to CRM because there's a lot of good archaeology that's get done on CRM. This is an article about archaeology that's about to happen. Okay. So, But it's good because... There's a lot of people that could be affected by something like this, and I just wanted to, to know. So, Is it like an announcement of an area that's about to be yes. done? Okay. Yeah, so let's talk about that. The article is titled, F.E. Warren Air Force Base, which I have never heard of in my life, to conduct field surveys June 14th to October 22nd. So the kind of the interesting thing about this is 
this base is part of what the Air Force calls their ground-based strategic deterrent project, which is a fancy way for saying it's where they keep their intercontinental ballistic missiles. So okay. any, if you've ever seen war games and yes. they're in like the middle of the north, the middle of the country and all these huge missiles are taking off to land in Russia, this is that. Um, the, the, the missile that we use is called the Minuteman 3. And I mean, it's like four stories tall. I mean, it's a freaking gigantic rocket. So this is survey for area that'll be storage for these missiles. Basically what they're doing is, Basically what they're doing is they are updating these missiles. So they're updating what I understand to be like the missile silos, they're updating some of the equipment, they're updating a lot of stuff. Okay. And in order to do this, they have to do a cultural resources survey. Now, the part of the big reason for this, now they're not saying this in this in this study here or in this article, but I'm willing to bet that one of the big reasons they're doing this is because when they did it the last time, it wasn't required. Oh. Because these have been here for a long time. Yeah, probably. Yeah, so that happens a lot when you get a, a revamp to a electrical line. I worked on a project in Vermont that crossed into Massachusetts one time that was basically a high transmission electrical line. They were adding capacity to it. They were taking it from a, like a 120 to a 220 volt capacity or something like that or something. Uh-huh. The line had been there for like 80 years, but the last time it was put in and any major upgrades had been done to it, it was pre the need or federal requirement to actually do that. I see. So we had to come in and do all these surveys on something that had already been heavily disturbed. Right. So, you know, anyway. So the Air Force, they started conducting a environmental assessment back in the fall of 2020 to determine exactly what needs to be done, uh-huh. which involves its own cultural surveys. All, in, all EAs are a little bit different. In fact, that's the project we're doing. We're doing a cultural survey, but it's to create an environmental assessment. Right. So this environmental assessment determined that many, many other surveys need to be done. Right. And basically they are doing, uh, it's kind of cool. They're doing cultural, they're doing wetland surveys, bio studies. So uh-huh. like it's endangered animals, things like that. Everything you can possibly imagine. So it's like full environmental, full environmental. impact situation. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. They're going to be doing it from June 14th to October 22nd. And the surveys include project areas that extend through parcels owned by private landowners and state and federal agencies. And part of the reason for that probably is if they're doing any sort of testing, I don't know how you test an intercontinental ballistic missile, but if they're doing any testing or anything like that, there are flying ranges and stuff like that. Like when we worked at China Lake Naval Weapons Center, there were areas that we worked at that weren't actually on the base, but that are affected by incoming flight paths and mm-hmm. all kinds of other stuff. So that's where this private land probably comes into play. Yeah. Or maybe road access to like if they're building right. some new facilities, they have to get a road there somehow. And there might be a right away that they're claiming from private land or something exactly. like that. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're upgrading a lot of stuff. They're doing things. And a lot of times the military or the federal government, because, well, quite frankly, they have the money to do so, rather than piecemeal it and say, well, let's do this thin corridor and let's do this one spot and this one spot and this one spot. They're like, you know what? We've got to do so much. Let's just do the whole thing. Yeah. Let's just get it all done. And that way, if we have to do anything else in the future, it's, it's done now. It's already done. Yeah. yeah. So now they called it a Section 106 project in the survey here. And I think it probably is because the Section 106 It's Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, which basically governs all professional archaeology in the entire country. Mm -hmm. The basic thesis of that is 
It's to study the effects of the undertaking, the federal undertaking, and the undertaking in this case is all the improvements that they want to do. Will that undertaking have an adverse impact on cultural resources? That's what mm-hmm. Section 106 says. There's one paragraph that determines our entire job. And if somebody ever strikes that paragraph from the from the law, <laughs> we're all out of work. We're done. Yeah. So, But that's not necessarily true because I was thinking it could fall under Section 110 as well. But I don't think it does because they're doing it as part of a particular undertaking, uh-huh. whereas Section 110 is basically a mandate for all federal resources to essentially inventory the cultural resources on their land. Right. From what I understand, when Section 110 was added to the National Historic Preservation Act back in like the 70s or 80s or something like that, mm-hmm. whoever was the sponsor on the bill, I think it was a, a first lady, if I'm not mistaken, but mm-hmm. whoever was the sponsor on the bill was like, yeah, it shouldn't take too long. We expect everybody will get this done in like, you know, maybe a year because Whoa. because we'll just get it done. What? Yeah, we were doing <laughs> section 110 work on the China Lake Naval Weapons Center just yeah. like a few years ago. So oh, interesting. I did not really know yeah. much about that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, section 110 is not done because of an undertaking. It's done because they got to know what's there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they're already occupying land yeah. that has been disturbed or could be disturbed. Right, so right. that was the whole thrust behind section 110. Yeah, because if some of these military bases, like China Lake and like some of these ones up in like Wyoming, I mean, China Lake has over a million acres, mm-hmm. and they only have that amount of space because, well, they're flying planes around and stuff. And if one of those planes happens to crash, yeah, or they get an errant missile or something, that's where they test brand new weapons. Right. So even though they may only actually directly impact one percent of that land, there's a chance that they could impact the other ninety-nine percent. Yeah, so they've got to be safe. Yeah, they got to know what's there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's section 110. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought this was kind of neat because you don't usually get advance warning of stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And only Wyoming would actually warn everybody this is about to happen. So, (laughs) Well, you kind of have to dig for it, too, to find it. I mean, it definitely wasn't making national headlines or anything like that. But I do imagine that those of you who follow shovel bums and other places where jobs get posted Mm -hmm. will eventually start seeing posts for jobs in this area this sounds big and i'll tell you what i don't really follow the job postings anymore because i don't really need to but yeah uh there must have been something that came out for this because it's gonna be a yeah it's gonna be a big survey yeah so you'll need biological people wetlands people and cultural people yeah archaeologists all out there doing this work gosh it just reminds me of ruby pipeline which we worked on Mm -hmm. 12 years ago jesus was it that long 13 maybe i think it was like 2008 Right? 2009. Anyway, it just reminds me of that because it crossed the entire state of Nevada and actually like shot north up into Oregon from Nevada. And I think it came across the other states, what, like Utah and maybe Wyoming as well. It's just a huge, huge natural gas pipeline. And the coordination it took, because we were just on the Nevada part of it, but like the coordination it took between the different companies working on it was insane. And It was private land and it was public land and it crossed. It was just it was just like this, but it was for a pipeline instead of an Air Force base. So, you know, different in that respect. But yeah, like I remember when we were doing survey, like we would have to skip these big chunks because they were like, oh, that's private land. We don't have permission to (laughs) go on that land yet or 
you know, they only want us to go on it on these certain days or whatever. So Mm -hmm. anyway, it's going to be quite an undertaking and I'm sure it will be a lot of management fun for whoever is doing that. Uh, I imagine the good people of Wyoming wouldn't mind federal, you know, undertakings taking place (laughs) on their private ranch land. Oh my God. That doesn't seem like a problem to me. You only have a person run at you with a gun one time (laughs) in your life before you're like, oh, right. Yeah. They're crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's cool. Maybe we can, if you're listening to this and you're on this project, you know you're going to be. Sometimes you don't even know, even though it starts in two weeks. Yeah. But if you happen to be listening to this in the future, maybe we can talk about it. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what, uh, you know, see what was up there. Please. You know they're not going to be able to talk about it. Come you could, on. You're not able to talk about any of the work that you've done on China Lake in the past, even though you're talking know, about it now and you shouldn't true. be. But well, if anybody from the Air Force is listening, <laughs> please contact us. Uh-huh. So... All right. Well, that was cool. I wouldn't mind, again, if any archaeologists are listening to this, it would be fun to talk to you about your projects this summer if you can. Yeah. Or if you're in a field school or something like that. So contact us, Chris, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Yeah. It seems like the only stuff that makes it in the news is things that get published by academics or, you know, people who are enthusiasts who find it out while they're walking around like that guy in Scotland. So we would love to just hear from some professionals that are doing some cool stuff and want to share with us. So please let us know. Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And again, if you hate the show, you hate everything about us, Tristan at (laughs) archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. He's going to be real sad he doesn't really listen to this show. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll be back again next time. Again, if you want to follow some of these articles and some new articles and then see all the podcasts that we put out in a seven-day period, head on over to arcpodnet.com. I should find a way to put a link up for this, but scroll up the page just a little bit or scroll down the page, however your mouse works, and you will be asked to sign up for our newsletter. So do that, and we're setting them out on Mondays and Fridays. They're short and sweet, but fun information. If you don't like it, delete it. If you want to look at it that week, that's great. Perfect. So check it out. All right, back next time. See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.